maybe the first medical grand rounds in the Translational Research Building. Am I right about that? Could be. So this is our brand new Translational Research Building, and uh, it couldn't be a more fitting place to uh, have a discussion about something that is on the cutting edge of translational research, um, which we'll hear about in a minute. Um, I'm Rick Enloe, Vice Chair for Research in Pulmonary and Critical Care, Vice Chair for the Department of Medicine. Rich Rothstein uh, is off playing golf somewhere, I think. Uh, so, um, so first, just a minute about this lecture. Uh, this is the Jerome Brody 44 uh, lectureship uh, established in memory of uh, Jerome Brody, uh, who was a graduate of Dartmouth and Tuck. Um, and let me see if I can. Yeah. Um, who's a very successful and uh, visionary uh, entrepreneur restaurateur. Uh, he established a number of uh, destination restaurants in New York, uh, as well as uh, other parts of the world. Um, he is probably, uh, perhaps to most, to most of you, if you've ever been to Grand Central Station, uh, he took over the Grand Central Station uh, Oyster House, uh, which is uh, what I'm showing right here um, with a, a mouth-watering plate of oysters. I haven't been an oyster fan, but I have eaten there, and it, it's quite fabulous. Um, and um, he, he had started an endeavor in Paris where he met uh, his wife, uh, Marlon, uh, who had been in, in France, in Paris, working uh, with John Steinbeck at the time. Uh, and this is a picture of Marlon, who joined us today. Um, with John Steinbeck, and that's, that's where she met uh, Jerry Brody and began working with him uh, before eventually moving back to this country. And unfortunately, Jerry died in 2001 of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and that, one, that was a time when we knew much less than we know now, um, though we still don't know much. Um, but. Uh, that Marlon Brody has generously established this, both this, re, this uh, yearly professorship as well as uh, funding for uh, ongoing research in pulmonary, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis related diseases, etc. Um, and for the last 10 years or so, we have had various speakers who've come through and spoken about uh, aspects of the disease new treatments, there's a variety of new therapies on the horizon, there's two that have been approved. Uh, and the, the, uh, the, at the moment, the holy grail is to stop progression of the disease. And we're actually, I believe, pretty close to that. Uh, we have a number of agents that look very promising. And so we're thinking ahead to, and way ahead in this case, to the time when the disease can be stopped in its tracks at any point. Um, but then the next question is, can you actually reverse? Can you regrow new lung? Uh, and that's the question that's we're here that we're going to be talking about um, with 
uh, Dan Weiss, who is an expert in that, in that area. So it's a pleasure to introduce Dan, who uh, comes from, to us from the University of Vermont, not far, where he is working on stem cell development in the lungs, growing lungs ex vivo uh, in culture. Um, he, uh, he trained, he got his MD PhD at Mount Sinai and went on to Michigan to do his residency and, and did a fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle where he stayed on as a uh, faculty member for a while before moving to Vermont where he's established a very successful research program, very well funded, um, numerous honors, numerous publications, and he's a professor of medicine and of uh, the Cell Molecular Biology Program. Uh, he's the chair of the American Thoracic Society Working Group on Stem Cell Biology, uh, focused on the lung, which is um, a, a long, is a long-standing interest of his and of folks in the field, because even in other circumstances, such as emphysema or in after pneumonectomy for for uh, lung cancer, the idea of growing new lung has always been uh, uh, something that has been a, a dream of many people, and hopefully within a decade or, or two, that will come to fruition. Anyway, without any further ado, uh, I'll turn this over to Dan, who will uh, tell you a little bit more about uh, what he's working on. Let me just close this out. Yeah. Hi. Great. Thank you very much for that kind invitation. And thank you very much for this honor. It's been a real pleasure to meet you. And I wish you all the best in the pursuit of stamping out pulmonary fibrosis. It's a miserable, miserable disease. What I want to do then is try and uh, explain to you all and share with you all some of the excitement and enthusiasm about cutting edge daily advances almost, it seems feels like that, in terms of regenerative medicine approaches for lung disease. And why lung disease? Uh, well, the, the sad issue is that most lung diseases remain incurable. Emphysema, pulmonary fibrosis, um, unfortunately, uh, we can potentially treat symptomatically, but there is no magic potion as yet, um, despite an awful lot of work. And in addition, there are a number of uh, less common lung diseases that also remain without satisfactory solutions. Uh, a number of critical illnesses like the acute respiratory distress syndrome or the adult respiratory distress syndrome remain without cures. And there is room for so much improvement and so much uh, novel innovation that this is the excitement, I think, of regenerative medicine approaches for lung diseases. Lung transplantation right now is the only uh, solution we have at the end of the day, but that's problematic, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. The way I want to approach this is to think about lung diseases in terms of the general characterization, acute, high-intensity, high-inflammatory infl type diseases, such as uh, ARDS or uh, septic shock, chronic inflammatory diseases such as asthma, cystic fibrosis, uh, some of the other genetic lung diseases, and how regenerative medicine approaches may be applicable to those. And then look also very hard at the uh, chronic fibrotic or destructive diseases like 
COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and see what the current state of the field, the current hope for the field is for these particular conditions. So the overall goal is to take a disease or a damaged lung, this is a schematic of an emphysematous lung, and get it back to a normal structure and normal function in terms of trying to uh, fix this um, clinically, and all the more to do this uh, in a patient, if you will, and actually to do it in situ in a patient. So what we're going to talk about are various approaches that have really taken off over the past 10 years or so, and we'll talk about endogenous progenitor cells in the lung. How does the lung repair itself? We're going to talk about uh, a little bit about gene therapy and cell therapy based on the idea of engraftment. Can you take a cell, a stem cell or any other type of cell, and inject it, have it somehow go to the lung, intercalate itself into the lung, and take on a structure and function that is going to ameliorate the particular condition you're trying to fix? We'll talk a bit about immunomodulation, functional repair using stem cells, and we'll spend some time on the science fiction aspect of this. Can you grow? new lung outside of the body for use in transplantation. And in doing this, what we'll do is touch base on a variety of different cells, including embryonic stem cells, induced peripheral stem cells, and a variety of other stem progenitor cells, and that's a broad-based term, that have been investigated for potential use in repairing a diseased lung. So how does an organ repair itself? This is a schematic of a lung and you can see the trachea and the branching airways all the way down to the alveoli. And it turns out that the lung, like every other organ in the body, heart, liver, kidney, pick your particular organ of interest, has as part of its makeup a rare population or populations of what are called undifferentiated progenitor cells. That is, these are cells that are located at various uh, portions in that organ that for the most part sit quiescently, but should there be some sort of injury or inflammation or insult to that organ, then these cells have the capacity to proliferate and differentiate and replace broken cells or broken tissue. And think about your skin, if you get a cut. Uh, there's a, actually a population of stem cells in the skin that will get activated, proliferate, differentiate, and replenish the skin epithelial cells that have been damaged. So it's the same idea in the lung. And when you look here at the schematic, and you can see in this uh, very colorful depiction that these are the cells that make up the lining of your airways, the respiratory epithelium. And there are a variety of differentiated cells, these taller green cells, ciliated epithelial cells, these yellow cells, mucin-containing uh, cells, and these are the differentiated, normally functioning day-to-day -day cells of the airway epithelium. But underneath them are a few of these red cells, and these are basal epithelial cells. And should there be some sort of injury in which these differentiated cells become damaged or denuded or degraded, then these red cells will proliferate and replace this underlying epithelium. So these are the progenitor cells in the lung. Now, the lung is a complex organ. And as you branch down from the larger airways to the smaller airways, the population of progenitor cells differs and actually 
has some regional specificity. And so down here, you follow this tree all the way down to a region, for example, where the, the bronchus, the airway, opens up into the alveoli, the gas uh, sacs where gas exchange occurs, then there's a different population of cells here, again, denoted in red. And should there be damage to either this distal portion of the airways or the alveoli, then these cells will also proliferate and differentiate and repair the broken or the damage that's been there. So this is a very exciting field, but the problem is that most of the data we have right now is in mice. We don't fully or comprehensively understand at all what these cells are doing in human lungs. And their homeostasis, how they're regulated, is not well understood. They actually may play additionally a role as cancer stem cells. So it's these progenitor cells that go bad, for example, in this, uh, following exposure to cigarette smoke or other type of stimulants. And these are the ones that will turn into cancer. The reality is that these are many years of clinical application. And you can appreciate that when you look at just the schematic of all the different types of cells that make up the lung, starting here from the trachea and then branching down all the way down to the alveoli. <coughs> the estimate is that there are about 40 or so different types of cells in the lung. And so to understand how any of these progenitor cells can replenish, repair, restore a broken lung is a pretty daunting challenge. And you get here a better sense in this, uh, again, very colorful schematic, and not to belabor all the different issues, but that there are a wide variety of cells and progenitor cells that we're trying to understand. If the lung is going to um, be a challenge in terms of endogenous cells, cells that are part of the lung in terms of being able to repair them, then what can we do about taking cells from outside of the lung and injecting them or putting them down the airways themselves and having some sort of repair? And so, of course, what immediately comes to mind are embryonic stem cells. And embryonic stem cells, just to uh, illustrate, are the cells that develop from a fertilized egg uh, to the five to six day old blastocyst. So these cells are divided and there's an outer cell mass and an inner cell mass. And it's this inner cell mass that can be isolated and then cultured and propagated into all of the different lineages that are part of embryologic development. So endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm that form these various organs and tissues uh, in the body. And so, as you know, there's been a huge amount of hope, a huge amount of hype about embryonic stem cell research. And so we'll take a look and see what that's uh, translated to in terms of lung diseases. So the embryonic stem cell history is also relatively recent. Um, mouse uh, cells are just isolated in the 70s. Human embryonic stem cells, just 1998. So it's not been around for all that long. And again, the cells have this uh, pluripotent capacity to differentiate into all lineages of the body. Now, you know that there are ethical, moral, political issues with use of uh, embryonic stem cells. And so what was developed uh, not too long ago was the idea of uh, alternative to embryonic stem cells. And these are induced pluripotent stem cells. And the idea here is that one can take a differentiated, normally functioning adult cell. So for example, if I took a piece of my skin and isolated out a fibroblast, a structural cell, then what was discovered is that if one takes that type of cell and turn on genes that were normally functioning 
during embryonic development, but then turned off uh, for normal adult function, then one can take this differentiated cell, de-differentiate it into a cell that, for all practical purposes, has the same attributes as an embryonic stem cell. And so these IPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, can turn into all the lineages that normally are found in developing uh, embryonic development, and one can theoretically replace, replenish, repair damaged tissue, damaged organs, a variety of diseases using these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. And this was uh, one of the, just for interest, uh, Shinya Yamanaka is the individual in Japan who really came up with this and spearheaded it. And this is the shortest time frame from a discovery to a Nobel Prize in medicine in history. It was really only about five years, illustrating the fundamental importance of this type of research and discovery. But now the question is, can you take an embryonic stem cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell and turn it into any type of functioning lung tissue? And there's all types of fascinating research going on right now trying to do this. And one of the main strategies that's utilized is to take an embryonic stem cell or an induced pluripotent stem cell and put it through steps in a petri dish that mimic embryonic development in vivo. And so the idea is to treat these cells with a variety of different growth factors and hormones and the like, and then push them through the different stages of embryonic development in situ. And these colorful pictures, again, show various stainings for lung markers, if you will. NKX 2.1 is a early marker of lung development. And so one can take an undifferentiated embryonic stem cell, undifferentiated IPS cell, and push them through their cases to things that begin to have markers, phenotypic attributes of lung cells. But right now, as of 2015, no one yet has been able to grow functional lung tissue from either embryonic stem cells or the induced purple stem cells. There's an awful lot of hope, uh, but we're not there yet. So it's going to take a number of years uh, more research. One of the positive things you can do, particularly with the induced pluripotent stem cells, is you can create these cell lines from patients with lung diseases. And in particular, genetic lung diseases like cystic fibrosis or alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency or sickle cell disease, etc. And you can develop patient-specific, disease-specific IPS cells. And these are wonderful, fantastic tools for drug development, drug research, and also for the cell biology, molecular biological pathways involved in the pathogenesis of any one of these conditions. So then take it a step further, and, or take a step back, and um, just contemplate right now, despite all the hype and hope of embryonic stem cells and induced pluripotent stem cells, moving outside of lung disease for a second, where is the, the world on this? And it turns out that it uh, is in a, set, a period of a little bit of equipoise right now. And so a number of years ago, the first trial of human embryonic stem cells in spinal motor atrophy, a devastating neurologic degenerative disease that was being run by Giron uh, as a pharmaceutical company, um, generated a huge amount of hope, huge amount of hype. And there was an immense amount of money put by Giron into this trial and an immense amount of paperwork. Uh, 
apparently there were 30,000 or so pages of documentation that had to go through the FDA to get this trial approved. So what happened was in the first patient or two allergic reactions, some sort of skin rash developed at the injection site. And it was probably most likely related to the vehicle, the solution that the cells were injected into. But you can imagine the consternation this caused. And what that did was it put a total halt on Geron's trial. And no one else has really picked up the ball here because of the expense and the regulatory issues and the amount of paperwork that's involved in injecting stem cells. And so right now, there really is very little, if any, uh, embryonic stem cell clinical trial work going on, despite all of the excitement, promise, and hype, if you will. The same thing with induced pluripotent stem cells. The initial uh, potential clinical applications were in some ophthalmologic conditions, uh, something called Stargardt's retinopathy, which uh, I presume none of us are ophthalmologists and we have no idea what that is, but it's a bad thing to have. And trials in Japan were up and going, and literally probably about three weeks, about four weeks ago now, uh, those trials were stopped because there was some sort of strange adverse reaction to the IPS cell injection. And so right now, despite all of these things, there's not necessarily anything going on clinically with embryonic or induced purple stem cells. And so moving back into the lung world, uh, we will continue research on these and uh, setting a preclinical stage, understanding the mechanisms by which these cells can potentially be utilized in lung diseases and then hopefully all this is going to clear itself up and we can move ahead. So if not embryonic stem cells are induced pluripotent stem cells, what about adult stem cells? And adult stem cells are those that you can get out of um, adults uh, from fetal uh, tissue or what have you. And ones that already exist and don't have to go through a de-differentiation process like the induced pluripotent stem cells. So it turns out there are a variety of populations um, that you can obtain, and a lot of them live in the bone marrow. And so uh, you all know that the bone marrow is the source of the hematopoietic stem cell and from which you can get red, white, and platelets, uh, blood cells. Uh, it turns out that there's some other populations, including endothelial progenitor cells and mesenchymal-derived stromal cells, or MSCs. And there's a lot of excitement about this initially. And so about, well, actually, in, in 2001, the paper came out from a group at Yale showing that if you took bone marrow cells and injected them into mice that had undergone chemotherapy, if you will, they'd been irradiated to ablate their own bone marrow. And yet the purpose of the study was to study reconstitution of the bone marrow by doing bone marrow transplants. But what this group did was very clever, and they looked at other organs and asked the question as to whether or not cells that were bone marrow in origin and destined or intended to replace uh, the constituted bone marrow ended up in other organs. And what was found was that uh, apparently these cells went everywhere. And then it, particularly lung, that if you went back and looked at the cells that made up the lung, you could find a number of bone marrow cells and there were estimates that you could replace up to 20 to 30% of lung cells with bone marrow derived cells. So this raised the, the whole excitement about the idea of engrafting. Could you inject a cell and have it travel through the blood, end up in the lung, 
damage, replace damage uh, lung cells. And so this immediately got everybody excited in the term uh, in the field of <coughs> lung diseases like cystic fibrosis. And the idea being is that if you could replace the cells, and just to back up one step, cystic fibrosis is the most common, and you all know this, you have a tremendous CF effort here, but a uh, most common genetic lung disease, single base pair defect, protein defect that affects lung, airway, mucus, and water components. And so the idea was if you could replace these cells with bone marrow-derived cells that had the normal gene, then you could cure cystic fibrosis. So this is where I first got interested in cell therapy. And the idea was that we have mice that lack the gene that uh, creates the normal functioning protein involved in CF. And if you can then take these mice and these have genetic cystic fibrosis and do a bone marrow transplant and then inject normal wild-type bone marrow cells into these mice, look at a variety of different experimental um, parameters, and then just see, very simply, if you could replace lung cells with these bone marrow cells. And we could. And is there, is there a way to turn that on? Because there'll be a bunch of fluorescence. But what you can see here, here's an airway epithelium. And these are epithelial cells in blue, the underlying lung tissue. Here's the airway. And we were clever about this. And we took male cells and put them into female recipients. And so if you track the Y chromosome by fluorescence inside your hybridization, then you can see here this red dot is the Y chromosome. And that's great. Thank you. And so these are donor cells, male cells in a female lung. And what they've done is somehow they've inserted themselves into the area epithelium. They have a morphology that looks like area epithelial cells. They actually have little cilia on them and they stain for epithelial markers like pancytokeratin. But the money is that they stain for the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductive regulator, the CFTR protein that we want in green. So we can theoretically cure CF by doing bone marrow transplant, right? No, the problem is that, <laughs> that the number of cells, when you count them, and we did some careful quantification, is less than 0.01% of the total area epithelium can get replaced with this methodology. And it is nowhere near, obviously, the amount of replacement you need for anything physiologic, more or less uh, clinical. And so the idea of engraftment, the idea of transdifferentiation, stem cells turning into lung cells or liver cells or brain cells or what have you, has uh, generated a lot of excitement, but has kind of uh, moved its way out. And what has become really exciting with uh, the stem cells, particularly mesenchymal stem cells, is the idea of immunomodulation. So mesenchymal stem cells, again, are stem cells that are obtained out of the bone marrow. And you can also now obtain them, well, not now, but uh, they have been recognized to be found also in a wide variety of other tissues, like adipose tissue, cord blood, placenta, uh, etc., And these are cells that were initially described as uh, fibroblastic-like cells, and they were felt to form part of the underlying supportive stroma in bone marrow, in which the hematopoietic stem cells were able to mature and turn into white blood cells and red blood cells and what have you. And what was really found to be interesting is that these MSCs, 
have the capacity to differentiate into a wide variety of cells, but primarily cells of mesodermal uh, lineage or origin. So these cells are well recognized as being able to turn into cartilage, fat, and bulk. And there's a fair amount of work in orthopedic and uh, connective tissue disease utilizing these differentiation capacity of the cells. What is more recognized and more felt to be the case as to what their actual biological role is, is that they live as something called a pericyte, and which means that they sit, here's a blood vessel, and this is bone marrow, and these are hematopoietic stem cells undergoing the differentiation pathways that they do. And the MSCs actually are felt now to line the blood vessels, and they express a pretty wide variety of damage and molecular pathogen associated receptors, so DAMPs and PAMPs, things like the toll-like receptors, as an example. And so what they do is they continually sample the bloodstream and the ambient inflammatory environment. And once they are triggered by any type of stimulus, then they release a pattern series of anti-inflammatory mediators, things like anti-inflammatory cytokines, antibacterial peptides, and what's uh, recognized uh, more and more as uh, microvesicles that contain inhibitory uh, miRNAs. And we'll talk about this a little bit. And so what that has done is created a rapid, uh, a extensive and rapidly growing field of investigation using MSCs, not for their stemness, not for their ability to differentiate into other cells, but rather for their ability to immunomodulate. And so what has been well documented and well explored right now is the fact that if you take an MSC, and here in the schematic shows a cell, and the wide range of a long list of anti-inflammatory mediators that these cells produce. And it turns out that if you inhibit, uh, if you incubate MSCs with B cells or T cells or a pretty wide range of other types of immune effector cells, then what happens is that the interaction will result in, inhibit, in a decrease in proliferation and a decrease in the specific immune effector function of that cell. And so this is uh, pretty exciting. And then if you couple that with the fact that the MSCs actually don't express on their surface a lot of molecules, uh, mouse histocompatibility complex or human equivalent, uh, human lymphocyte antigen, HLA, and that low levels of, or no levels, of the different types of immune recognition molecules. What that means is you can take my MSCs and inject them into any one of you, and they won't initially trigger immune responsiveness or immune reaction. And so what that has allowed is a successful use of allogeneic MSCs. So you can take someone with uh, some sort of disease you think MSC-based therapy will be utilizable for, and you can collect the MSCs from normal college volunteers, if you will, and inject them. And what this has allowed is a rapid growth in a number of biotech and industrial interest in this, because one can then take normal bone marrow, isolate the MSCs, expand these cells uh, pretty dramatically in culture, and make this into something that could be industry-based in terms of a new therapeutic approach. And these cells also have the ability to um, lodge at sites of injury. They have chemotactic pathways and receptors. 
And they sit in the lung. We're kind of going to come back to this a little bit um, when they're first injected. But what has occurred is that there's now a wide and widening application in clinical trials. And this includes the initial target disease of graft first host disease, uh, but also you know, autoimmune diseases like Crohn's disease, uh, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, also cardiac diseases. If, if you think of uh, acute MI, acute myocardial infarction, as an inflammatory event, then the philosophy was that MSCs could come in and have anti-inflammatory action. And there have been many, many, many cardiac trials uh, for this, if you will. And the cells are now approved in Australia and in New Zealand for refractory pediatric graft or disease. So there is excitement here. Now, what about lung disease? So um, understanding the biology of these cells, they will be injected. And when you inject something into the blood, the first major capillary bed hits is going to be in the lung. And so the data seems to be that these cells will be injected, end up in the lung for about 24 to 48 hours, and then they disappear. They're cleared by a variety of uh, mechanisms. And so the idea being is that they do not stick around. This is an important concept. They're not being utilized in these instances for their stem cell differentiation but rather their paracrine immunomodulatory aspect. So if you think about the type of disease that in the lung world that's going to be potentially amenable to this, the probable best chance for success is going to be uh, the acute inflammatory, high-intensity inflammation diseases like the adult respiratory distress syndrome or sepsis and septic shock. Right? You need a big bang for the buck, and then you want the cells to go away. Whether or not chronic inflammatory diseases like asthma, uh, cystic fibrosis, uh, bronchopulmonary dysplasia in the pediatric world are amenable is, is a good question. Whether or not chronic fibrotic or disruptive diseases like COPD or IPF are going to be amenable to this uh, type of therapy is debatable at this point. So if you take this further and look at the preclinical literature, so studies in mice or larger animals or an explanted human lung, there are now a huge number of publications in preclinical models of things like COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, asthma, and around this circle. And in virtually every one of these, um, you can administer MSCs at some point during the disease process and wipe out or ameliorate all the disease-induced uh, endpoints that you have uh, provoked in these models. So it's very exciting. And th there are a lot of potential mechanisms that have been uh, speculated or discussed, and these are listed here. So different, these are all different uh, hormones and cytokines or anti-inflammatory mediators, including things like antibacterial peptides that are released by the MSCs in these, type, oops, in these types of uh, conditions. And you can see as you go around that there's some similarities, but there's some differences. So another important concept it's not one size fits all. It's that these MSCs are going to do different things under different experiment, different inflammatory environments found in different lung diseases. So the mechanisms, uh, soluble mediators, uh, again, these uh, anti-inflammatory things, microvesicles, which are small buds of plasma membrane that are shed by cells, and they contain uh, a very interesting mix and match of things like inhibitory 
miRNAs, mitochondria, lipid mediators, uh, protein mediators. You know, we're just beginning to understand the potential importance of this. One other potential mechanism of MSC actions is not that they're doing anything directly to the lung, but rather indirectly they're influencing the T cells or the macrophages. That's the mechanism by which the lung disease gets better. So, what has been done with this? <clears throat> if you went back five years or so ago and you looked at clinicaltrials.gov, the NIH FDA website that lists all clinical trials <clears throat> that have been entered into the field, um, you could find several hundred trials of uh, MSC based cell therapy across the board, including many, many, many in cardiac diseases, but there were zero, five years ago, zero for lung diseases. So the lung field has been slow to adopt or uh, move into this area, and part of it reflects the complexity of underlying lung diseases and how you would actually best utilize these cells for that. But now um, you can see that there's an increase in the number of trials, and uh, COPD uh, leads the pack, if you will, but you can see the range of other diseases that are being investigated with this type of cell-based therapy. And in addition, there are a variety of planned trials. Uh, the Canadian sepsis uh, network trial is uh, actually undergoing now. And there's some other possibilities that have not yet been addressed, uh, such as organ preservation, lung cancers, and mesothelioma. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So another thing to understand um, in terms of the clinical trials, is that these are still in relative infancy. And so the vast majority of these trials are phase one safety and dose escalation. The key thing is you want to make sure that you're not going to do damage or harm or anything uh, deleterious with these cell-based therapies. There are a limited number of phase two efficacy uh, trials. And you have to realize that uh, there is no consensus, there is no right way of doing these trials. There is no right way, as of yet, of using these cells. And this reflects a number of different things. Remember, these MSCs come from a variety of different sources, even things like menstrual blood. And one of the un unanswered questions at this point is whether or not an MSC from bone marrow is exactly the same as one from fat or poor blood, and whether or not the different sources will have any effect on a particular disease indication. One's going to be better than the other, if you will. You don't know whether or not using someone's own MSC. So if I needed to harvest my own bone marrow and take out MSCs and inject them for something, um, is that better than if I got bone marrow cells from a normal healthy volunteer that a drug company had or an industry had um, expanded and given back? Uh, the question is, can you take these cells further and manipulate them? And by that, it's meant, can you engineer them? Can you use a gene transfer or other techniques to increase secretion of something? And that is, uh, again, less well explored. We don't know the dose or the dosing to use. Uh, we don't know whether it's better to give these cells intravenously, systemically, or directly down to the trachea and use the advantage of having direct airway administration. And also, we're going to come back to this, that uh, not all trials listed in clinicaltrials.gov are legitimate. Uh, the whole idea of stem cell medical tourism is uh, a pretty bad one. 
All right, so given this, um, we were approached a number of years ago, uh, a number of years, about six years ago, by a company called Osiris. And uh, I have nothing to declare, I'm an employee or what have you, I'm an academic investigator funded by a drug company to do a clinical trial. And what the company, and this was at the time the leading company in terms of pushing ahead cell-based therapies with the uh, MSCs, and their main focus is the company that brought this to fruition for draft first host disease. They wanted to move into other disease targets, and they moved into cardiology, and they wanted to move into a program. And what they wanted to target was, again, a market, the largest market they could find, irrespective of the underlying pathophysiology and biology. And so COPD is the largest market out there, unfortunately, uh, for lung disease patients. And we explained to them that we don't think that this is matching the biology of the cells to the pathophysiology of COPD. We didn't think it was going to work. But nonetheless, it was uh, an opportunity to do that first safety trial and to see if you injected cells into patients with bad lung disease if they were going to drop dead on right? I was being blown about this. And so um, what we did was a phase one, two, uh, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled. So we tried to do this uh, properly, and the placebo in this case was the vehicle, the solution in which the cells were injected. There was not another cell, for example, that was a comparison. And these were uh, six patients, 65 patients at six sites. And here's a little bit of the booty. So the patient received four infusions over the course of four months, and you can see on the study visit schematic, uh, the arrows show each injection and then they were followed for two years. So that's a good long follow-up. But this schedule of injection was totally random. Not, not random, it's, and that's not fair, but I'm making the point that we made this up, in a sense. There is no right or wrong way to do this, okay? And the primary outcome was safety. The secondary outcome were pulmonary uh, functions, uh, but at 65 patients, the, uh, the study was grossly underpowered to detect changes in lung function by spirometry and other measures, and also in terms of uh, quality of life uh, questionnaires. But what we were able to do was to convince the company that in addition to serial blood tests for routine toxicologic screening, liver function, kidney function, hematocrit, uh, CDC, lights, and things like that, that um, they would also measure levels of circulating inflammatory cytokines and see if we could in any votes. And so this is the uh, schematic of how the study went. And we were able to uh, follow the majority of patients after two years. All 62 patients went through the entire infusion uh, protocol, all four infusions. And so the outcome of the study in brief was that safety was clearly established. There are no infusional toxicities, and in particular, no signs and symptoms of pulmonary emboli. The idea that the cells would clump up in the lung vasculature and cause any problems, and that was a huge, important finding. There were no serious or attributable adverse events in the two-year follow-up, and as expected, no change in lung function or any quality of life indicators with respect to lung disease. But what was uh, discussed here, or what was found, was that if you looked at one of the inflammatory markers, so C-reactive protein, it's not uncommonly elevated serum of patients with advanced COPD. And if we took the subpopulation of uh, individuals who had an elevated CRP, 
uh, entrance and follow them than the ones that received the cells versus the vehicle had a statistically significant decline in circulating CRP during the period of the infusions, that four-month infusion period. And then the statistical significance was lost, but the trend continued over the first two years, I don't know, the two-year follow-up. So what this was, was again, a very successful trial from safety, underpowered for efficacy, and look at this fascinating mechanistic hypothesis generating clue that the cells are actually potentially doing something anti-inflammatory. So where is this gone? So COPD, again, is not necessarily the, the ideal target in the lung world. And the ideal targets, I think, are going to be acute lung injury, RDS. And there's an initial trial in progress out of UCSF. Uh, sepsis and septic shock, the Canadian sepsis network is up and going. And then I think um, for uh, post-transplant, post-lung transplant or post-bone marrow transplant, bronchiolitis obliterans, I think, again, a orphan disease, if you will, or orphan condition compared to the others, but I think this is going to have a lot of success. And so with respect to the uh, ARDS trial, the um, uh, uh, trial, uh, phase one trial is already published, and this is, uh, again, shown safety uh, in the uh, phase one portion of this, and the phase one, two is underway, and we are part of this trial, and will be one of the smaller sites, if you will. All right, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, to, because time is going by so quickly, uh, to some other considerations. So what other uh, ideas for cell-based therapy may be successful? And the idea that uh, asthma is going to be potentially responsive to this, we can wipe out asthma in mouse models with uh, MSC-based cell therapy. So we're looking to uh, move ahead to clinical investigations for that. I think cancers are a huge, understudied, untapped area where cell-based therapies may have incredible effects, if you will. You can, in particular, engineer the cells to express anti-tumor complex, and the cells localize to the tumor, and so there's a lot of potential. Uh, donor lung conditioning, uh, so taking those 85% of potential donor organs, treating them with the MSCs to reduce the ischemia reperfusion injury and primary grass dysfunction is, I think, a very strong field. We've just published on this and have uh, a untreated versus a treated lung, and you can see that this looks quite normal. This is quite deranged, if you will. So we have some uh, industry partnerships going to try and move that ahead. Now, what about fibrotic lung diseases? And so idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And this, this is a focus area, of course. And this is, as you know, a miserable disease to have. We have some animal models uh, that are not necessarily um, truly reflective of the disease, but they're the best of what we have so far. And this includes uh, bleomycin, uh, so a chemotherapeutic agent that clinically can cause pulmonary fibrosis, but also uh, is a model in rodents to reduce pulmonary fibrosis or radiation. And there is no question in the preclinical literature that if you take a mouse and you give it bleomycin, um, what happens is there's an acute inflammation over the first few days, followed by gradual progression and development of fibrosis over a week to two weeks and longer. There's no question that if you give MSCs during that acute inflammation, then you can decrease the subsequent 
progression of fibrosis. Okay? Uh, so that means that if you can figure out how to identify pulmonary fibrosis early in the game, then this may be an approach. Right? But one of the problems with pulmonary fibrosis is that it's insidious. And that more often than not, you don't find it because it doesn't manifest until too far down the road. That rare patient that has had, for example, a chest x-ray for something else, that and you say, what's that? And it was clinically unsuspected. That's where we would hope to be able to do this therapy. But in contrast, if you get fibrosis when it's too far down the road, and the model here is radiation-induced fibrosis. So if someone has radiation therapy to their chest, one of the side effects can be development of fibrosis. So if you take mice as a preclinical model and you irradiate them, and then you come back three to six months later where they have established scar, established fibrosis, and you give the MSCs then, unfortunately what, happen, what happens is that the MSCs actually will contribute to more fibrosis. The cells actually will turn into fibroblasts and you get more fibrosis. So you see the kind of uh, seesaw here. IPF, as most patients present right now, is not going to be amenable to this type of cell-based therapy. If you catch it early, then you can potentially make a strong argument that the animal models suggest you can have some efficacy. If the goal is to slow down progression, which is a huge goal, as Rick had mentioned, um, that would be wonderful. But we don't have the data for yet. And so that's where a lot of active research is going on. And in terms of clinical trials, there have been two that have been published so far, one out of Greece, one out of Australia. And these were short-term, one-year, six-month follow-up. And these are primarily safety trials. And so these are critically important because no adverse effects, no adverse effects. So the IPF patient isn't going to drop dead if you inject stem cells into it. Okay? Not to make this simplistic, but it's a very important consideration. And so right now there are a number of trials going on um, in, actually worldwide, including University of Miami, uh, for different types of uh, MSC-based stem cell approaches for hepatic pulmonary fibrosis. These, for the most part, are small safety trials, underpowered for efficacy, um, and they're controversial. And you also see here, if you look at them, bone marrow-derived stem cells um, uh, given intravenously, bone marrow-derived stem cells given intratracheal, directly down the trachea, Adipose, fat-derived MSCs given intravenously. Cord blood MSCs given intravenously. Again, this gets back to the fact that there is no rhyme or reason in this. Uh, we don't, there is no right way, there is no wrong way in doing this. And so it remains a pretty wide open field. All right, what I want to do is, um, in the last couple of minutes, um, have fun and show you where science fiction is coming to life and the idea of trying to grow new lungs outside of the body. So the idea being that lung transplant is the only option we have for end-stage lung disease. But there are two huge problems. Number one is there are too few lungs to donor lungs to go around. Secondly, that even if you're lucky enough to get a lung transplant, it is a foreign entity to your body. And so there are tremendous problems with both acute and chronic rejection and five-year mortality after getting a lung transplant is 
it's pretty visible. So the idea is, can you grow a new lung outside the body? And in particular, can you grow a new lung that won't stimulate, uh, stimulate immune rejection, right? And so the idea is already taken uh, some progress in terms of simple, and it's a deliberate misuse of the term, things like the trachea. The trachea is just a tube. synthetic scaffolds and a whole bunch of biomaterials and we had done some work with gel foam. Gel foam is a denatured collagen gelatin sponge that looks like lung under the microscope. You can put stem cells into it and they'll express surfactants. We can do things like take a mouse, cut out the left lung, do a left pneumonectomy, and then implant into that wound cavity a sponge that's been impregnated with different cells and come back a couple months later, so here's three months later, and you can see here's remnant sponge, a rib, muscles in the rib wall, a blood vessel, and then all this stuff that grew out of that stem cell impregnated sponge. And some of it looks like alveoli and what have you. And, but the idea is that this is a great tool to study biology, but how do you hook up a sponge to the blood vessel, to the blood supply and the airway? It's a difficult prospect. So where the field has gone is uh, something called decellularization. You can take a lung, or a heart, or a liver, and if you wash it with sequential detergents, enzymes, hypertonic, hypotonic solutions, you can lyse all the cells and wash them out. And what you're left with is something that looks like a lung. Here's a mouse lung, here's the heart, the trachea is cannulated. And it has all the structure, it has all the extracellular matrix proteins, it has all the biological, um, structures such as blood vessels and alveoli, and you can see this under light microscopy and electron microscopy and immunohistochemistry for native and uh, decellularized, uh, showing the retention of all the extracellular matrix proteins, but there are no cells. So you have an empty scaffold that's lung, and the idea is that if you can then take the eventual transplant recipient, get cells out of that person, all right, whatever type, and this is a challenge, and then put them back into this now empty scaffold, then you can grow that person their own lung. It's really exciting. And if you read science fiction, these guys had it nailed 40 years ago, and we're just finally <laughs> catching up. And you can perfuse these lungs, you can ventilate these lungs, you've got all types of bioreactor systems to grow these lungs over the weeks and months it'll take them to grow back. And these are the challenges, these are the considerations. So um, you have, here's a lung. And you have to figure out how to best get rid of all the cells. All right? Then you characterize what is left. Then you have to figure out what types of cells to put back. And that's a bit of a challenge because there are, again, at least 40 different types of cells in the lung and you have to get them just right. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And then the lung being the lung, there are things like mechanical stretch, 
oxygen the lung is doing this and so simply mechanical stretch is important for normal lung cell function so you have to build all this into your engineering approaches and so this is an example of a human a human lung that is a native lung and we get our lungs from autopsy and you can see how it gets sequentially washed out with all these detergents and you end up with this white pristine looking lung and we can use all types of tools like mass spectroscopy and others to characterize the proteins that are left inside the lung. And then we've developed some approaches to uh, really increase the throughput of the study. So if you're studying decellarization and recellarization in mouse lungs, you've got lots and lots of mouse lungs. Uh, if we get a lung every once in a while from autopsy, well, that's, you need to be able to look at all your different experimental conditions. So we figured out a way to cut out little pieces from the lung and then cannulate the airways. And these are about thumb-sized pieces out of a big lung so I can get 100 segments, if you will, to increase high throughput. And then we can cannulate the airways, cannulate the blood vessels. We developed an artificial pleural coating because that's now gone if you cut up the lung. And this is an alginate-based uh, coating, and it actually works very well. And we actually, as a spinoff, uh, figured out that this may be something that's uh, immediately clinically useful for lung disease. And, and this is the context of pneumothorax and bronchopleural fistula. And the idea is that if you have damaged your lung somehow, it collapses. You have to put a tube in to reinflate the lung. But if there's underlying lung damage, then it will not necessarily peel properly. And so the whole idea is that we can use the, this algae, seaweed-derived material, non-toxic, easily available, easily manipulatable, that we develop as a research tool to grow new lungs outside the body. And we can just make a little algae patch. And this is a mouse lung uh, outside the body. It's being ventilated. You can see the nice, good pressure. If we rip a hole in it, pressure goes down. If we put this little Band-Aid on, the pressure goes up. So this is a really clever and I think simple approach. We've got some patents on this and trying to license this out to a variety of companies. Now, what about disease lung? This is the last uh, two or three slides. I don't know if time's getting short. And so um, part of the question with this decellarization and recellarization, growing lungs outside of the body, can you use this for disease lungs? So here is a normal lung that's decellarized. Here's an emphysematous lung that's nasty looking. And when it's decellarized, you can see all these carbon particles smoking. Same thing here with uh, <coughs> patients with pulmonary fibrosis. And so native and then decellarized, and you can see it's not a normal looking lung at all. So the question is, can you take an emphysematous lung or a fibrotic lung uh, and use that as your scaffold, as your platform, to grow new cells in? And the answer is uh, probably not. This is um, a normal lung uh, and decellarized. It looks very nice. Here's an emphysematous lung. You can see these big alveoli. And then after decellarization, these alveoli remain big. So we use these as model disease systems. It's very nice advanced. And this is a complicated slide. And we'll work through it really quickly. Um, but underlying message, though, is that if you take a decellarized lung, 
from a normal person, a non-smoker, and you put a variety of cell types in, epithelial cells or vascular cells or fibroblasts, and you take culture these out for, let's say, a month, the cells are very healthy and very happy, right? If, in contrast, you take a lung from an epizematous patient and do the same type of processing and the same type of cell seeding, the cells start dying within a day, and then they're gone by day seven, day three, even. There's something fundamentally different about that underlying scaffold, that underlying matrix, from a diseased lung patient compared to a normal lung patient. So that gives you huge insights into some of the pathophysiology and areas for study, and it makes it even a bit more of a challenge to be able to, to grow new lungs because getting normal lungs that you can decellarize and then recellarize uh, may be more as much of a challenge as getting normal lungs to use in regular transplantation schemes anyway. So this is a very exciting field, and I think let me just end here with the concept of lung regenerative medicine as a whole. So uh, just to kind of recap what we've looked at, the progenitor cell biology, those cells that are normally part of the lung that can participate in repair, are excited and rapid advances, but not yet ready for prime time. There is no clear role as yet for embryonic reduced pluripotent stem cell-based therapies. Cell-based therapies, particularly with the MFCs, are where the excitement is right now. This is where clinical success is going to happen in, I think, the very short term. This clinical trial for ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, is going to work. And that's going to really jumpstart a whole lot more. And the ex vivo lung engineering and other types of engineering approaches is really exciting. And there's a huge amount of biology that we've learned 10 years. We still have another 10 years ago to really, I think, unless we're clever about this, maybe nine years. Um, but there's, there's a long way to go here before that gets to clinical applicability. So what are we doing up at UVM? So we are starting a regenerative medicine program. And not to labor all this, but it's going to be a transdisciplinary medicine engineering business to take advantage of commercialization and entrepreneurship aspects of all the things that we're developing, devices and other um, new approaches, and to just turn this into a really first-rate, cutting-edge regional, regional, which means that this is a huge potential for joint involvement with our uh, center, if you will. Uh, with that, one last plug, we hold a conference every other year at UVM in this field. It's a leading conference in the world on this. And with that, let me thank lots and lots and lots of people and leave you with this last thought. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. That was fascinating.